0: Hello friends, my name is Aliza Kelly. I'm a celebrity astrologer, three-time author, and host of this podcast, Stars Like Us. Think of Stars Like Us as your favorite nighttime talk show that just so happens to be released every Monday morning. Each week we connect with another amazing expert guest, and together we talk about everything under the sun. But before we get into today's episode, take a moment to rate this podcast five stars, Why? Because you're the fucking best. All right, now let's do it. Sit back, relax, and get ready for another out-of-this-world conversation. This is Stars Like Us. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Stars Like Us. I am your host, Aliza Kelly, and it is a profound honor to welcome, I can't believe it, it's Dr. Richard Tarnas who is here on our show. For those who are not yet familiar with Dr. Tarnas, I I don't know what you're doing with your life yet, but here's here's the bio. Richard Tarnas is a professor of psychology and cultural history at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, where he founded the graduate program in philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness. He teaches courses in the history of ideas, Archetypical Astrology, Depth Astrology, and Religious Evolution. He is the author of The Passion of the Western Mind, A History of the Western Worldview, From the Ancient Greek to the Postmodern that is widely used in universities and cosmos and psyche, which received the Book of the Year prize from the Scientific and Medical Network and is the basis For the documentary series, The Changing of the Gods. We also now know that Dr. Tarnas is a Pisces sun, an Aries moon, and a Gemini rising. And at the time of this recording, we are just a few hours away from a beautiful, mutable transit. We have a full moon in Virgo, sort of at the backdrop of this conversation. It is such an honor to have you on the show. I am such a huge fan of your work for listeners who are not yet familiar with dr tarnas is absolutely an icon truly in astrology and astrological research mundane astrology has done extraordinary research and created this canonical work which was really mapping huge epics in history through the lens of mundane astrology and massive you know the outer planets massive astrological movements that were taking place and cosmos and psyche has been especially in the past 2 years i think it came on everyone's radar during the global pandemic because that was definitely something that was discussed in the context of the saturn pluto conjunction i'm absolutely a total fan i am i am i cannot believe we have you on the show it is such a blessing thank you for being here
1: thank you it's very kind of you to to welcome me to your audience, and um, and uh, appreciate the the glowing review. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's from my Pisces moon heart, <laughs> so you know it's real. So you know it it really touches me that deeply. Thank you. So I would love to just you know uh, give our listeners sort of. Th- your introduction in your own words of, of what your journey with this material and this work has been Um, you have been working for many decades in this field. So if you wouldn't mind sharing sort of like your own origin story, I think that would be an amazing place to start.
1: Well, sure. I, I began with like many who received a typical 20th century education. And I think probably the more rigorous the education The more likely you were to have a negative view of astrology, um, if it even crossed your horizon. And it wasn't until I was at at university—I was about twenty years old. uh, This was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and a professor at the at the Harvard Divinity School. I was I was an undergraduate at Harvard College at this time, and a professor at the. Divinity School, who was also uh, a Jungian analyst, and he'd been trained by C.G. Jung in Switzerland. He's um, this professor was from Switzerland, and uh, we 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 had become uh, friends. Actually, he he at one time had been the the therapist uh, for my my girlfriend at Radcliffe. So we're talking like 1970. So this is like the uh, the early Jurassic period. So what what are we talking about? Fifty. 52 years ago. And he, uh, we, we had our conversations about, you know, European ideas and philosophy, psychology, Jung, Freud, things like that. And it was always a kind of elevated intellectual scholarly discussion. And then one day he must've asked me for my birth, at least birth date, maybe birth, uh, information generally. I too had been born in Switzerland, in Geneva, so that might have been a common thread. But he he came into our conversation one day talking about where the positions of my planets were and what that uh, could signify. And I thought he'd taken leave of his senses. I thought, you know, geez, we're usually having this you know, very uh, erudite scholarly discussion, and now we've descended to the the pure world of fantasy and superstition. And I kind of steered the conversation back to our usual pathways. And, you know, in, in retrospect, I see how, I don't know how much we choose astrology so much as astrology chooses us. It knocks on the door, it enters our lives in different ways. And I wasn't apparently ready at that point. But a couple of years later, after I'd graduated, uh, I graduated, I from the and was coming from the East Coast to the West Coast. I was coming to Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, which was at that time—I mean, it still is—a a real center of adventurous learning. But at that point, it was a kind of world center of of the counterculture of new ideas as well as ancient ideas, and it took seriously things like shamanism or astrology or it brought in really excellent teachers like Dane Ridgear came through there for example in the 60s and taught so uh, in fact even there were there was even a, a birth chart for Eslin that was around the community when I came in and it was while I was there I lived there for 10 years I came there to study with people like Joseph Campbell and Houston Smith, but also particularly I was working on my doctorate and was working under Stanislav Groff. Now Stan Groff was the head, he was the leading psychiatrist in the world working with psychedelics, with sacred medicines, with uh, LSD in particular. He had come from Prague and at this point he had just come from years working out of Johns Hopkins and uh, the The last surviving psychedelic therapy center uh, research um, at that time. So, during our years, during the decade that we were uh, living and working um, at Eslone Institute at the same time, one of the problems that we had been trying to address was how do you, I think some of your listeners um, may may be acquainted with this, and a paradox, which is that two people can take the exact same psychoactive substance, an entheogen like MDMA, or it could be a, uh, a psychedelic, or it could be a, um, yeah, something like an ayahuasca uh, journey, same substance, same dosage, and yet have a radically different experience, really different, like heaven and hell the kind of difference. And for uh or the same person at different times could have radically different experiences, even though they're in the same set- setting, they have the same uh, s- substance or dose. So therapists for and researchers in this area, all during the 50s and 60s, had been trying to figure out, you know, use different psych- psychological tests to see whether they could predict how a person re- would respond. Because these are powerful medicines, and it would be helpful to know whether people would be more likely to work well with it or uh, what kind of experience they would have. But none of the standard tests like the Rorschach test or the thematic apperception test, MMPI, none of them had any predictive value. They just didn't seem to help at all. And one day, an artist was in one of our seminars uh, who also knew astrology well. He told Stan and me that in his experience, people's transits, that is where the planets were in the sky relative to where they are in a person's birth chart, as I'm sure all your listeners know, but that was new to us at that time, uh, that the transits were the best uh, indication for what qualities of experience a person might be going through at that time. So he suggested that we learn how to calculate birth charts and learn how to calculate transits, and he showed us how. Uh, at this time, there was no personal computers and stuff. So we were doing it all by hand. And then because we had good records of our own sessions and we also had Stan's database from over the years, we were able to see that how, the way astrologers described the meanings of certain transits, what the meanings of the planets were, and also their natal aspects we are able to see that the kinds of experience that each person was having and the timing of those experiences matched up with uncanny consistency with the descriptions. That the descriptions of the transits, also the, the descriptions of the natal aspects, correlated well with certain consistent themes that a person would have over many years of doing this work. So we were astonished. We we started doing more systematic research. Esalen was such a great uh, laboratory uh, of people going through transformational experiences because they went there for those kinds of experiences and were taking workshops and seminars that involved practices like gestalt therapy or reikian work or different types of body work, somatic uh, therapy and so forth. Where you'd go through uh, deep transformations, and people just started lining up to get their tr- chart and transits read. And we were watching the correlations unfold, and it just started teaching us a lot about how it worked. N- make a long, s- well, I was going to make what's already been perhaps too long of a story shorter at this point. I'll just sum- summarize that after that, I started looking at. What did Freud have when he kind of had his breakthrough into understanding the, the nature of the unconscious and that dreams speak to us symbolically? Or what what transits did Rosa Parks have when she didn't get up from the bus and and catalyze the civil rights movement in 1955? Or what did Galileo have when he turned the telescope to the heavens for the first time and and saw the much larger and different universe than he had been educated to think existed so to see these kinds of breakthroughs see how those transits also matched up with people who had breakthroughs in their psychological and spiritual journeys also the crises also how crises and breakthroughs tend to work together too all these things started unfolding and then finally the last step was to start looking at what we called world transits which uh, traditionally it's called mundane astrology, as you know, and to see, well, what what happens when the entire world is going through these long-term outer planet transits, like the Saturn-Pluto conjunction that we have just been coming out of, or the Saturn-Square-Uranus that we're in right now, or the long Uranus-Pluto conjunction of the 60s, or the square that we, that we had during the last decade. Uh, and to just see how consistent across the world, when the uh, any uh, g- given two outer planets or more outer planets come into alignment, major aspects in particular, and the conjunctions and oppositions and squares being the most dynamically visible in the in the cultural sphere, we just see across the world. Historical tr- events and uh, collective uh, movements, cultural trends, uh, and and so forth that remarkably reflect the exact nature of those particular planetary archetypes uh, as they come together when you when you synthesize the the meanings of say uh, Saturn and Pluto or Uranus and Neptune, for example, a huge generation was born under this recent Uranus-Neptune conjunction of the recent, um, in terms of centuries, Uranus-Neptune conjunction of the later 20th century. And that whole generation has certain characteristics, the millennials basically, that very much reflect the nature of the Uranus-Neptune archetypal energies. And we see it being played out in in many things including i think the 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 much greater openness to astrology by the way that i think we we see in in uh, that generation so that's a survey you you asked me perhaps a a question that took longer to answer than would be ideal
0: no i i asked for an origin story so <laughs> you actually that is you cannot uh, an origin story requires that depth and to me I'm really stunned by this case study because I don't think that I, I mean, this is the most compelling evidence of the efficacy of astrology that could potentially exist to me, you know, of, of seeing an internal experience reflected through the transits. And I think that that has always been the dissonance for many people of understanding the way that a natal chart or transits are embodied is that a lot of it does come from a psychological, internal, emotional, spiritual space. And these archetypes and these experiences aren't necessarily going to be, you know, a traditional scientific method. That those aren't necessarily the best tools to be able to gauge the efficacy of it, even though it sounds like you were abiding by many of the same systems and techniques in this
1: except for the fact that we are always paying attention to the qualitative and not just the quantitative. Uh, in other words, it's the nature of this kind of research to, you. one needs to really dive deep into the qualities of experience that people are going through. And these can't always be quantified. Uh, they can be described in eloquent language um, or they can be sometimes also They can be nonverbal. I mean, they can be experiences that are like a spiritual epiphany or something that's very somatic and doesn't really have a verbal content. And what you're putting your finger on, I think that's so important, is that the way astrology seems to work uh, in terms of the expression of the meanings that are inherent in these planetary archetypal powers. what. Would be called the gods and goddesses in in another era, and in the modern period might be called uh, more like uh, psychological forces or complexes. As long as we use that word "complex" to mean not just pathology, but also all the positive things that can come from any uh, archetypal energies coming through. To recognize that these are coming through in the inner world just as much as the outer world. And that the inner world is an arena that is just as vividly expressive of reality as the outer world. In fact, we're always seeing the outer world through our inner world, where every act of perception or claim of knowledge is is an interpretation uh, that is shaped by our psychology. It's shaped by our our past. It's shaped by all sorts of things, uh, gender, race the historical era we're, we're living in, the culture that we live in, and so forth, all these things are always shaping our experience. And these in turn um, shape how we view events and also what kinds of events we draw towards us. That's important too. One of the great points that, that Jung makes in his work is how we draw towards us events and as sometimes disruptive events that reflect what we're not looking at inside. You know, in other words, uh, what does he say? Something like, what we keep in the unconscious comes back to us as, as if it's fate, as if it's just something happening to us without our volition. But in some ways, it's being constellated by our uh, our own psyche. As long as we recognize that we're not each of us separated from the whole, but we're, maybe this is a good Point in, the, in our conversation to, to say that I believe that the way astrology works isn't so much that there is a, a electromagnetic or physical sort of force field that is making us be certain ways. Like Mars is just um, making this person be angry or something like that in a kind of physiological way. Like if Mars gets to this place and then it it just has this uh, linear causal effect it's it's not like that it more seems to be a, a synchronistic relationship between the movements of the planets and the movements of the archetypal energies within us and around us and i love the ancient uh, philosopher plotinus's description of the the reason for this correlation between the movements of the planets and the stars in the in the heavens And our own uh, experiences here is that everything breathes together. Everything is interconnected. We're we're a larger unity. And as he also put it, everything is is full of signs if you know how to read them. And the planets uh, and sun and moon seem to be especially vivid vessels of intelligence and communication. To us, uh, of the dynamics of the soul of the of of the world, as it were, the anima mundi we call it in in philosophy and depth psychology, anima mundi, the soul of the world.
0: Yeah, I, I abide by that philosophy as well. You know, I, I think when a lot of people find themselves in that ex, you know, going beyond the horoscope, getting into the birth chart, seeing seeing yourself reflected through these symbols and archetypes through the location and the proximity of these different planets and their co in the way that they all coexist together i think that then the next step for many of us becomes sort of an existential yeah. but how how could this possibly how could this be you know for me uh my you know discovering my Pisces moon, discovering my eighth house stellium. These were things that were groundbreaking realizations, discovering my 12th house stellium, you know, like these were profound um, breakthroughs for me in my own personhood. And then how, you know, how could that possibly be? And I find, you know, I think that any person who's really working with this material and is also applying critical thinking an awareness of the limitations of symbols and archetypes and just the the knowledge that these are, the planets themselves did not speak and say, please name me after the god of war, or please, you know, I I would like to be Kronos, I would like to be time, I'm Saturn, you know, the planets weren't asking for this. We were projecting our own truth onto the rotation of these celestial bodies but what I find extraordinarily compelling is the fact that we needed to, We there was a correlation in time and in experience that was perfectly reflected in the time and experience that we have observing the planetary bodies from our perspective on Earth. And that vantage in this microcosm, macrocosm allows us to be able to turn telescopes into microscopes and microscopes into telescopes and we can see the same timing and the same storyline unfold internally on earth within us but then also you know on these greater outer planet experiences too as it relates to you know the social planets the transpersonal planets however you want to call them like greater cultural consciousness at large and I also think that you know and the reason I love working with the outer planets is because even the discovery of these outer planets so perfectly captured the zeitgeist of each time that they were being discovered. You know, Neptune was imagined before it was even identified through a telescope. And like that, the beautiful correspondence between even the the scientists and the astronomers who were identifying these different celestial bodies We needed those celestial bodies to reflect massive changes that were happening socially at the time of their discovery. So, to me, that strengthens the idea that, like, we need a language that exists outside of ourselves to be able to reflect it back to ourselves.
1: That's true, and I think in that sense, the universe is kind of—it's given us a gift. It's—it's a a kind of ongoing gift of uh, that would help us with our our self-knowledge, our self-reflection, our our self-understanding, and also remind us of our unity with the whole universe, and that we're not just these isolated, skin-encapsulated egos, as Ellen Watts uh, described it, that are isolated from a soulless, meaningless cosmos. Rather, the human soul and our spiritual uh, and emotional lives and moral lives are embedded in a universe that also is capable of carrying uh, meanings and purposes. Uh, And the fact that there is this ongoing, scarcely believable orchestration of the movements of the planets with our experience suggests a very powerful intelligence is at work here, far beyond anything that uh, we human beings could, could really imagine. You've put your finger on a on an important uh, distinction between like the planets that were known to the ancients because they're visible to the naked eye, which would be besides the sun and moon, but the the planets Mercury through Saturn, all of all of which were were visible to the ancients. While Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, the planets discovered in the eighteenth, nineteenth, and twentieth centuries, respectively, they did not come with a pre-given. Uh, significance, the astronomers, they had different reasons for coming up with those names, which each one has its own uh, little history. Uh, for example, Uranus was originally called uh, in Latin, uh, George's star, Georgian Cetus, uh, because the discoverer, William Herschel, wanted to honor his sovereign patron, in, uh, the King of England, George. Uh, and so, but of course, the French Astronomers were not enthusiastic about having a, a new planet named after a, a British king. And so there was a, a number of discussions about what would be the right name. And And then it was finally named uh, Uranus because Uranus is the father of Saturn, Kronos, who's the father of Jupiter, Zeus, who's the father of Mars and Venus and Mercury. Okay. And then Neptune and Pluto each have their backgrounds to the naming. Now, you mentioned that the planet Saturn or the planet Mars didn't say to us, uh, I want to be named this or that, but rather we, did you say project our inner meanings on, onto the planets in some sense. If we follow what the uh, ancients uh, describe as much as we can, what, what their own experience was like, and of course, we're getting back to periods often before there are Adequate written records. So we don't uh, we have to piece together a lot. But it does seem that there was a kind of capacity for, let's just call it a capacity for intuition. Sometimes it's been called a kind of natural clairvoyance uh, that the ancients had, indigenous people, a capacity to kind of read nature and perceive the heavens with, in some sense, a range of a vision and understanding that our later modern consciousness may not always have access to. And there may have been, uh, and, and in fact, I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that when the Mesopotamians were, uh, and then later the the Greeks were naming the the planets, uh, as Plato put it, the planet that is sacred to Kronos or the planet that is sacred to Hermes or to Aphrodite, that they were doing so with a sense that while well, well, the planet may not have just said, name me Mars or something like that, or, or Aries or Aphrodite, in some sense there was a, a discernment, not just a projection, but a discernment by the, the human students of the heavens, the astronomer astrologers, it was one science at that point, and they were recognizing these meanings and then these meanings get passed on and of course they develop as our own consciousness develops we get a deeper and deeper sense of the of their nature their meanings even right up to the present but then the outer planets start being discovered by telescope and that creates a whole nother issue because we didn't inherit these traditional meanings and and who's to say that the astronomers who often were not astrologers I mean generally they weren't uh, in the modern period and they're naming, them for different reasons. Like Pluto is named Pluto because kind of combination of factors, PL for Pluto also happens to be Percival Lowell, the first letters of his name, the person who initiated the search for Pluto, um, the astronomer. Also, there was a, uh, a young girl, she was 11 years old, who was, I think, the granddaughter of one of the astronomers who were on the committee to make the decision and she knew greek mythology and she made a very strong case for pluto as being appropriate and those kind of combined i've heard that there is also some she had some fondness for the disney character of that name as well <clears throat> it was 1930 uh, the the gist of it is that different factors went into the naming of these planets and it was only over time that the um, astrologers studying carefully, well, what happens when a person is born with that planet rising? Or what happens when, that, when a person goes through a transit with Pluto conjoining their sun or Uranus opposing their Venus? What, what do we see happening during that period? And they start seeing patterns and, and, and qualities that repeat themselves, often relating Quite interestingly, to the original uh, astronomers' names, though with some uh, variation, uh, which we is beyond our our time right now to to discuss. So the, and I think you're completely right that uh, the discovery of a planet in the modern period tended to coincide with a period in which the archetypal qualities of that period were especially in evidence in the collective psyche. So Uranus and the, the wave of revolutionary energies, American Revolution, French Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, Romanticism, and so forth, that were, were all it was coming up to the surface uh at that time. Or Pluto in the in the in, in 1930. I mean, you look at that period, that kind of uh decade or more on each side of that period, just how much the world descended into a plutonic crucible of often, you know, like a volcanic transformation. um, But with all the many, many challenging qualities of Pluto at at work, and uh, Neptune in the middle of the 19th century, the the spread of um, Asian mystical traditions into the West, the founding of the chemical industry and, and anesthetics, The the wave of uh, romanticism and uh, what was in the U.S., the version of it was called transcendentalism with people like Emerson and and, uh, Margaret Fuller and so forth.
0: And the advent of photography. That's right. Which I just think is remarkable.
1: Very true. Uh, A perfect example of it. So everything's breathing together. And just as when we're born, we are carrying a kind of um, imprint of the state of the cosmic archetypal dynamics at that point, as reflected in the positions of the planets uh, at the time and place that we're born. In the same way, when a planet uh, or a new celestial body is discovered, in some sense, it too is bearing the qualities that we see at work in the collective uh, psyche and history at that point. Now, a lot of research needs to be done on the the new bodies that are being discovered almost as we speak uh, over these last couple of decades. It takes a lot of careful research and reflection, but we're at that point um, now where there's universal consensus about the meanings of Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto in the, in the astrological community uh, around the world of anybody that studies and uses those planets. There's no big uh, controversy about what the meanings of those planets are. Now that's pretty amazing. If if astrology is just an illusion, how do you get thousands and thousands of astrologers to ag- agree that they are seeing the same thing when they are notoriously like cats in terms of herding them into a, a single line of, of of thought? It's a very diverse community, but there's no real disagreement about what those meanings are and that's because they're so consistent and because there's been a lot of research over the last well c- century and uh, over a century uh, and a half with uranus um, uh, neptune uh, about that and pluto now for 90 years
0: yeah i think that the pluto i have this wonderful i love collecting i love going to old to used bookstores and collecting old astrology books Good for and you. I have a <laughs> thank you. It's it's one of the reasons I have so many books around and not know where to, of being able to inventory them. But I have uh, this wonderful copy of a it's called A to Z Horoscopic Delineation by Llewellyn, and it's from the it, the first edition was 1914. And the addition that I have was just within the first decade of Pluto being discovered and the language around it is so it's it's so beautiful because it is it is that perfect balance of, you know, these this is we're going to try to work with this narrative you know we're going to we're going to see if pluto as representing you know the underworld representing this concept of hades representing this sort of like you know this depth of character of person. We're gonna see if it checks out. Like we're we will we'll give it a, a good college try, but we don't know yet. And the edition that I have brings Pluto in as a um, a revised edition of the material in recognizing that something really important, obviously, you know, planet nine was discovered. And in the discovery of this from an astrological perspective, we need time to see if these associations, that these archetypes are going to fit the bill, and it's so wonderful to have this as sort of like a, you know, a this portal back into astrologers from almost a, a century ago to see how they were trying to, you know, is it working? Is it is it going to work? We hope it works, but we might not work, and in which case, all of this might end up being useless and throw it out, and. I, it's interesting to be in obviously over the, since then through now, technology, space travel, um, our ability to see and discover new things in our solar system and then way beyond our solar system has just increased exponentially at rates that I'm not even sure if we have enough deities to be able to assign these characters to. And that's, it's a really, it's an interesting time to still be present. It's an interesting time to watch the integration of that. You know, I'm really closely following the James Webb telescope. You know, I think I'm so grateful to be alive in this moment in history because no doubt we, we are going to unearth unbelievable things with this, just as we did with the Hubble telescope, you know, it's, it's tremendous what we see. And then to uh, marry that with astrology is both like very daunting, (laughs) and then also really exciting. And perhaps that is also, you know, that's Uranus. At work right now, create giving us access into, you know, maybe that's the squares, maybe that's giving us access into our ability to really stretch our understanding of what astrology can do and create maybe some boundaries of what it doesn't do, you know, to be able to define its shape as it relates to space itself.
1: Yeah, that Uranus, uh, Well, with the whole Hubble telescope phenomenon, that very much was an expression of the Uranus-Neptune conjunction um, wh- when it was launched. And then it had to be corrected uh, a little bit afterwards as Jupiter came into uh, the alignment with it. And from that point on, after they corrected the mirror, it, it just all through the Uranus-Neptune uh, conjunction of the 90s, we were just getting flooded with images that were expanding um, through technology, Uranus, but their images, which is Neptune, and there's a, even that quality of of numinous wonder that comes with with seeing those kinds of photographs and images is very reflective of the Uranus Neptune. By the way, uh, it's it's so uh, important to acknowledge our our ancestors and uh, our our debts and the person who first really recognize this phenomenon that you talked about, namely uh, that the discovery of the outer planets coincided with periods that had the qualities of that planet at play in the in the collective in the world history and and the cultural life of of that time uh, over a decade not just like right that day or that year, but over, um, a several several year or even, you know, a decade or two on each side of this larger orb, as it were. And it was Dane Rudyard who recognized that. And it was in uh, a book that was originally published as The Sun is Also a Star. That was the original title. And I think it's also been published later under the title, Birth Patterns of a New Humanity. And he he nails it. Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto with uh, talking about the major phenomena, the revolutionaries of the 18th century and the discovery of Uranus, the kind of spiritualism, in fact, spiritualism and the, the mediums and the people who were tapping into the, the spiritual world in new ways, starting with the uh, the Fox sisters in, in upper upstate New York, 1848, uh, that's all coinciding with, with Neptune. Uh, and then, and then Pluto, of course, in the twentieth century. So it's really Dane Rudyard that we owe a lot to for his. I mean, we owe a lot to for many reasons. He was probably the major twentieth-century astrologer who did the great integration that Jung pointed to of the findings of astronomy and uh, the astrological tradition with the depth, the findings of depth psychology coming out of um, Freud and Jung and archetypal psychology and so forth, and how these these really marry uh, in the most uh, uh, fruitful way, including the very important point that by being more psychologically aware of what planetary um, principles are at work in our particular life, at what time, and also the enduring patterns that are suggested by our natal chart. The more self-knowledge we have uh, of that sort, it gives us the capacity to act more freely, more consciously, more skillfully. Astrology then is not telling us what our predestined fate is, and that we're then somehow imprisoned in it because that's what uh, our chart says. That's a, I think, a real misreading of the potential for astrology and the beauty of what Dane are in particular. I mean, he he was drawing on, on on others, but he was the key spokesperson for recognizing how much these are are multivalent symbols that can work out in a wide range of ways that can be very. Life enhancing or they can be shadow forms of, of the same archetypal complex and it's 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 up to us, not up to the heavens as to how we respond to to those energies.
0: yeah, I as you were speaking, I also was just recalling just you know, and I, I think that it's important for to remind listeners, even though this is obviously in the background, just as a byproduct of the material, but the psychological the just the real integration of psychology in the late nineteenth century into the early twentieth century is was so cataclysmic in understanding how the the nuances of the internal world and in the internal experience, and of course, I say this thing called tank, which means there are no coincidences. Pluto becomes assigned to that very nature, just you know on the tail end of that, you know, as it was really going on. But I, I always remember when I was in high school, you know, learning about Chekhov and the Chekhov plays and how radically different they were in tone, in nature, in narrative from anything that had really come before. And a big part of that was because it coincided with psychology. And prior to that, we had these, you know, these dramatics, it's very entertaining, it's very external. And then playwrights such as Chekhov are are turning the gaze inward and really bringing the story uh, about the human experience on an individual level. And that is so punctuated with Pluto, you know, that that changes our entire framing of these planets and the way that we embody them individually. And then, of course, you know, we are, (laughs) I, I don't want to say coming out of the United States Pluto return, we're still very much within it. As we are here in the United States Pluto return, we are talking about Pluto. We're talking about the soul, the depth, the psychological undercurrent of a nation. And all of us are, you know, watching what's happening. Obviously, right in the same week of the exact United States Pluto return, we have Russia invading Ukraine. I feel like that is, you know, the correlation that I see in that is a real it's very Plutonian, you know, I, to me, it feels already very Plutonian of looking at the United States's own movements as a, a nation and how, you know, the, the storyline of the United States of the not terribly distant past, not looking that radically different from the tyranny of Russia invading a sovereign nation. To me, that is the mirror so far that I see. But obviously, time will tell how this all unfolds. But that is striking a chord in thinking about the the origins of of the United States itself as well.
1: If you think in terms of, uh, yeah, I think one of the characteristics of the Pluto return is certainly the United States need to look at its shadow in terms of the timing of the Pluto return we have to, um, as as you were saying, it's not just that day or, or a short period. I mean, the Pluto return is a big uh, epoch. And if you think about your Saturn return or anybody's uh, Saturn return, the first or the second, uh, sometimes the third, but everybody uh, who's an astrologer uh, or is astrologically initiated has some sense of the importance of that first Saturn return in bringing a a, a kind of maturational threshold that uh, moves one from one's youth into one's mature years, whether it's in terms of uh, one's work in the world, one's calling, one's one's um, relationships, uh, one's commitments. Many factors that uh, go into that Saturn return, including our encounter with our own mortality, but a greater poss- potential for for being our own parent rather than being dependent on, uh, even unconsciously, on older authorities to tell us what to do. There's much more. If a well-integrated Saturn return involves kind of introjecting those authority figures so that you become your own authority in a certain way um now when we think of the saturn return it's clearly not something that happens in a day uh and in fact you know there's pretty wide consensus that from around age 28 to 30 is is a pretty uh full full full-on saturn return probably from you know approximately from the 28th birthday right through age 30 so Say the three years up until the thirty-first birthday uh, is when it's most active, and I've, like in cosmos and psyche, I list about I don't know fifty um, examples of famous people at what what happened to them during their Saturn return and how pivotal it was in their lives. Now the reason I bring that up is, well, if the Saturn return uh, is a approximately three years, then a Pluto return for a country obviously. Individuals don't get Pluto returns because we don't live to be 250 years old or 48. Um, so in this case, we've been going through the Pluto return for a while in my in my view, and uh, it's going to be unfolding for a while. We're certainly at an epicenter of it, and uh, the Pluto return is a uh, suggests that the entire country will will be and has been going through a great uh, Crucible of transformation that involves a kind of descent, uh, a descent in, a descent into the underworld, a descent into needing to face our our, our shadow. I think the political upheavals the uh, that we've had to see in the in the last five years, in particular, by six years the. Ah, uh, the upsurge in um, in things like racism, for example, and seeing the consequences of it, and becoming conscious of the history of the United States in a way that hasn't been focused on in our high school textbooks, you know where it's kind of a different story is is given than what good historians have been and are now with increasing clarity. Uh, revealing from from the research as to what our nation's history actually has been. As noble an experiment as the the United States project is, it's uh, one that is as fallible and imbued with cruelty and self-deception as the history of any other nation, because it's a human phenomenon. And in addition, Becoming conscious of that is the only way to go through that kind of plutonic transformation of that moves from a dying to an old identity to a rebirth uh, and to the possibility of a kind of cleansing and a, uh, that comes from that deep self-confrontation. But d- looking at power struggles and experiencing power struggles, uh, dealing with collapse of structures and um, and a kind and and seeing the need for a kind of redemptive transformation in our national psyche, I think those are all very characteristic of of the Pluto return. I'm cautiously hopeful that as this decade progresses, of the 2020s, and we're moving into a Uranus trine Pluto in the course of this decade, getting tighter and tighter as we move to 2024, 25, etc. And not only will the Pluto return be happening, but the U.S. is going to go through a Uranus return.
0: I know. <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> it's wild.
1: <laughs> so they're both, they're both moving into position where they, were when, they when we were when 1776 happened. And the difference is that Uranus, this will be the third Uranus return. The first one was right at the time of the Civil War. And the birth of, as Lincoln called it, a, a new birth of freedom that would, in a sense, help fulfill the potential of the original birth of freedom um, that was not, that didn't include everybody. Right. Uh, and Selective freedom. <laughs> very uh, uh, patriarchal, racial, uh, and other property uh privilege and so forth that that affected the uh, citizens power so we're in a in a continuing moral journey as a country and this pluto return i see as signifying a very significant threshold of transformation for us
0: yeah i i, I absolutely agree and i think that it's i really i i feel that with the Russian movement into ukraine I, I I think that what we will see or what I anticipate on a collective level us experiencing is a continued reckoning in the United States of how do we differentiate one manifest destiny promise from another
1: Good point. Mm-hmm.
0: and it's and i I hope that Putin and Russia and this storyline does not look so similar to how the United States and the, the impact that you, the United States at, in informing itself has been. But I do think that it is impossible not to, you know, ask ourselves on this collective level, like, why was it okay when we did it? But it's not okay if he does it. You know what I mean? Like it's it's an it's a reckoning. It's an awareness of our own fallacies as a nation and how it, you know, you can't make exceptions or what are exceptions in the year 2022? You know, what are the how have things changed? And if we are making exceptions now, if things have changed, what is the United States doing to differentiate itself from its own past?
1: Very good point. I think it's important, too, to remember that when we're thinking of Russia, Russia's got a profound um, spiritual depth to its people and its culture. You brought up Chekhov, who was uh, an extraordinary voice of the Russian soul who transformed 20th century theater in doing so. Uh, Also, short stories are fantastic, too. Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, the great uh, Russian poets. We have to remember that the Russian people, it, right to this moment, they don't know what's going on um, as a as a people. What's going on in Ukraine, uh, because the propaganda and the suppression of even calling it a war, they don't know that people. They don't know the soldiers are dying, any dissidents are being um, arrested and and punished, et cetera. So. Uh, What we're looking at is a will to power, uh, above all, on the part of Putin, and it's going to be important for us Americans to make distinctions and remember that, not to demonize the entire Russian people, uh, who, who are, in many respects, they're not aware of what's happening and in addition uh, if there had been fair and free elections it's quite questionable whether Putin would be their their leader and we know a little bit about that in our own country uh, so yeah I think you're 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 right on target in terms of recognizing even the events that are happening internationally outside of our country's borders have meaning for our own uh, transits and our own self-understanding and, and our own moral growth as a as a nation.
0: Yeah, I. we have to see what happens. Trying something new can be very intimidating. Meditation may be something you've been hearing about for like literally years, but you have yet to try for yourself. Maybe you're worried you won't be good at it or you're doing it wrong. Calm helps you feel more at ease from the very moment you start. Find somewhere that's comfortable and familiar to you, like your couch or your bed, and tune into Calm. I'm partnering with Calm, the number one mental wellness app, to give you the tools that improve the way you feel. If you go to calm.com slash Aliza, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription, and new content is added every single week. Over 100 million people all around the world use Calm to take care of their minds. Calm is important because mental health is a top priority. And just like we make choices around what we wear or what we eat or how we move our bodies, considering our internal experience is absolutely essential. So for listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash Go to calm.com slash Aliza for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com slash So I have two questions for you, which I okay. conclude every episode with. The first is, what do you believe in? Casual, (laughs) Uh a casual existential question. This is why, you know, if you need to say chicken sandwich, it's, it's, we accept a chicken sandwich answer.
1: (laughs) I have a a belief in that overlaps with a sense of awareness of, I I remember when Jung was asked towards the end of his life, did he believe in God? And he hesitated uh, for a second as he answered the interviewer. I think it was a BBC interview. And at first he said, no, not uh believe. I know. And he had, in other words, he had a kind of direct experience of a divine dimension of being. And to say, I just I believe in it can sometimes mean, well, this is kind of a, a A leap, or I'm I'm taking others' word on it, or this is what I was taught, and therefore I believe it, et cetera. But if we take the word belief to also include the idea that I live on the basis of a conviction and a continuing lived experience that we live in an intelligent cosmos that is a a profound mystery that's unfolding, and that we. Human beings are participating in that mystery, and we seem to have a, a particular role to play because of our capacities for self reflection, uh, also our capacities for for destruction. How how many other species on this earth we can affect by our actions or inaction, our blindness. Uh, and so, for me, the bringing your question home to the question of astrology and the background for our our whole conversation here. Um, I think the fact that the universe is providing us as human beings with a continuing uh, disclosure or revelation of how the universe itself seems to be meaningfully focused on this earth, this moving earth, no doubt, not just on this earth, but from those of us who live on this earth, it is clear these correlations are showing us that the movements of the planets and of the earth and the, the continuing alignments are being are, are constantly in this kind of beautiful orchestrated harmony with the, our, own, our own experiences and the dramas of history and so forth for us to see that we have been given the possibility of recognizing our connection to the universe itself is a sign that the universe, in some sense, is pouring its capacities for meaning to towards this earth and towards each of us on it. It, it, It's an act of caring in a certain way. And in that respect, um, we are the recipients of a kind of cosmic love, uh, as well as the recipients of uh, and the carriers of a certain responsibility in relationship to this very special role that we have to be able to discern the the, the symbolic meanings and and to be able to track them with our telescopes and to study them with our psychological meaning and uh, our understanding and our historical research and so forth all this is i believe in such a universe and i'm convinced uh, that we we exist in it and it's a it's it's a blessing um, it's it's a it provides a sense of existential and spiritual um, grounding and centering, a kind of security. Not that w- any of us can't be quite destabilized in a in a moment by the un- unpredictable events of our lives, but beyond that, I believe we're being carried by a larger. Benevolent whole that is intelligent and is aware of not only this earth uh, as what it is, but also the fact that each of us as individuals and our individual birth charts have significance, and the the moment to moment transits that we're going through that those are also correlated with the planets. It just suggests that, in some sense, the divine intelligence is just pouring out its meaning every moment to every individual and to our entire earth community and no doubt it's doing it to the rest of the universe as well. So that's kind of an awesome reality to me to to be dealing with and I think it's something that astrologers are in the uniquely privileged position to be able to experience directly for themselves.
0: I love it. That's when you started talking about this cosmic love. I was thinking about cosmos and Eros and Psyche, (laughs) Mm -hmm. adding Eros into the title mix as well.
1: (laughs) Many years ago, like 30 years ago, I gave a lecture on Cosmos and and Eros in Berkeley.
0: (laughs) I love it. So question number two is, how does magic show up in your life?
1: Well, I suppose what I've just been describing is a kind of magic. If we think of magic as being, there's many ways to define it, but let me just think of it as reflecting the possibility that we live in an enchanted universe what are the signs of that well the signs of it are things like synchronicities that happen to us where we we meet that person or hear that talk or read that book right at the time that in retrospect we couldn't imagine our lives unfolding the way it should have uh, the way they should have unless That person had come into our lives at that time, or unless we had come across that idea, or this this book almost like opened up to that page, and I and I got that insight that moves me in this direction rather than that those those kinds of um, synchronicities, which sometimes can be quite uh, compelling and give you the sense that wow, more is going on here than random accidents. I'm not just projecting my meaning onto it; (laughs) it is telling me to uh, pay attention this is meaningful and i've had plenty of those kinds of experiences so that's one form i suppose you know gary snyder is a poet uh from he was one of the beats and and became one of the great uh, poets of the ecological awareness of the last uh half century and he uh he in a talk he was giving on, to writers or about how to be a writer, how to cultivate the capacity, as, maybe as a poet or, or a writer generally, I remember he talked about the importance of reading and writing and, you know, mastering um, your craft as much as possible. And then he adds, and know at least two forms of magic. And I thought, well, what are my two forms of magic, uh, which immediately came to mind? I mean, and, and one is definitely astrology. And um, which is a kind of sacred practice that kind of allows an unprecedented insight into the in, interior workings of the universe and of, of human life. It illuminates so much; it's quite magical as well as profound. And then, uh, for me, also the uh, the sacred medicines. The the journey I've had since nineteen sixties has certainly been one that has been blessed by as well as you know challenged by my work with the different psychedelics as well as cannabis and and so forth which i think if used in a very disciplined reverential careful way can play a an extraordinary role in our our transformation, our healing, and our our deeper insight into things.
0: And an undeniable Pisces (laughs) 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 through and through. And I also I have I wanted to ask you as well how the Jupiter transit has been for you.
1: Well it went through went across my sun, I suppose, right as both a a book that I had been editing in, in honor of Stan Groff. I've been co-editing called Psyche Unbound, right as that came out in, in January. And then uh, this 10-part documentary series called Changing of the Gods uh, uh, was just released this past month, right during my birthday week. And it went out to, I don't know, like 100,000 people during its first launch. It'll have successive launches to come I didn't make the series, but it was. It's based on my work. Uh, uh, a team of filmmakers uh, made it. The head of of pioneers was the person who gathered a team of filmmakers and made this ten part series about basically history and uh, the planetary movements and all the great social, ecological, justice movements and and women's movements, and so forth, scientific revolutions that have correlated with the planetary alignments that I set out in Cosmos and Psyche. So when that has been gone out and been seen by uh, so many people, I got that typical Jupiter sun thing of suddenly the sun is shining on you a lot, you know, perhaps more than I relish. Cause I'm a little bit of a, I like my seclusion, uh, <laughs> uh, but any anyway, and the the email box tends to get much too full for me to re- be able to keep up with, which as a dedicated response, Attempting to be responsible and responsive person is very hard to when you can't keep up, no matter how hard you try. With
0: you know. it's true, but. that's very very true. In the spirit of of signs, symbols, and synchronicities, I usually pull a card with a question in mind. But I think it might be fun to just pull a card. These are all the uh, astrology symbols, and to see what that tells us. Does that sound good to you?
1: Sure, we'll. we'll s-
0: unless you have a specific there, unless there is an entry point that you would like to come into it with.
1: Oh no, I'm fine with uh, letting it speak to us.
0: Cool. Here's our human intervention, though. Would you like me to pull from pile one, two, or three?
1: Well, let's go with pile two. Great choice.
0: <laughs> Love pile two. Okay, here we are. We pulled the grand cross. The term that they have here is provoker. So. What are your thoughts on the Grand Cross?
1: Uh, The Grand Cross, of course, astrologically, is uh, the most dynamic and the most challenging of alignments. What comes to mind is the fact that, I mean, in some some sense, uh, I mean, we've been discussing um, a world in crisis, and we're all participating in it, and I think the more we engage it with Open heart and open eyes. The more we experience the 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 challenges and sufferings of the world. But the thing about the Grand Cross is that, in fact, this is something that that came only slowly to me as I studied more and more people's charts, famous individuals' charts, and historical periods as well. And that is that, you know, we're we're sometimes taught, you know, all this, especially in the earlier astrological textbook, they would talk about like an evil aspect or a good aspect and, and really kind of a, a very dualistic view of good and bad, or you're born under a bad sign, or, or this relationship will never work out because you've got squares between your this and that. And I think that's a real misreading of astrology. And the proof of that is that if you study carefully the people whom you most admire, and then you, and what you most admire about them, and then you look at their charts. It's typically the hard aspects, the squares, the oppositions, conjunctions that carry the very qualities that you most admire in that person. And it's also when those individuals are undergoing hard aspect transits, such as the Grand Cross, that they are challenged to meet. I mean, that's where the, the true heroic journey takes place and the heroic courage and effort to be able to take a, a situation like that, and those grand crosses make things happen. the The forces are coming from um, all these kind of opposing directions, and we need to become the crucible uh, that uh, synthesizes, integrates, honors all four directions. In some sense, it's like it's a mandala, and we need to be in the center and somehow be able to take it and. Um, integrate it and that in some sense is a crucifixion at another level it's a birth so that's how i would look at that grand cross knowing that we're in a very challenging time and that is a kind of symbol of it as as well but where there are challenges that's where the, the great moments that we most admire that we find most admirable that we that we feel that person lived their life in a noble way a way that i aspire to those things didn't usually happen uh, with the person who just had all trines and no squares or oppositions or just, or the, their lives were, I mean, everybody go, goes through hard aspect transits, but it's the hard aspect transits that tend to coincide with the periods in a, person life, in a person's life that really shows us who they are and right. reflects their greatness as a person.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a character defining moment to have all those cardinal directions activated. I'll take a grand cross over a grand trine any day, (laughs) any day, (laughs) any day. If you haven't been able to tell yet, I'm a Capricorn rising. I have Uranus, Neptune, and Saturn all in Capricorn on my ascendant. So for me, a grand cross is a homecoming. Uh (laughs) It's, I, I love the tension. I love, I love the dialogue. I love the different points of view and i love the integration i love that we have to find a way to make it work coming from all of these different angles you know all of the squares meeting together in this formation is is action it's momentum it's a choice i love that we pulled this card for our conversation i think that that's, that totally fits the bill it totally tracks
1: and it's also f- fiery. Uh, you can see the uh, the coloring on it, at least as I can see it here. You know, it's 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 got a kind of plutonic crucible to it as well.
0: It does. yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's also it brings us into sacred geometry. It brings us into these greater um cross-cultural truths that exist in so many esoteric and mystical traditions. That extend beyond the western mythology and the western archetypes this is the shapes in here are these universally That's understood right. geometries and points that are found in in all organic matter
1: yeah it's the um it's it's the mandala which is a great sacred symbol where you have the the square and the circle which is Kind of bringing together time and eternity, and uh, uh, all the other opposites in a larger um, conjunctio oppositorum uh, or conjunctio uh, complexio uh, oppositorum. It's a a unity of you know above and below, left and right, and uh, masculine, feminine, uh, conscious, unconscious. All those things are coming together in that grand cross symbol of the of the mandala
0: i love it so where can our our listeners find you and find your work and also find this this new show that came out
1: okay so i'm going to have to i i do have a website that i i need to update i've been so focused on you know one of the things that when you're a professor is that you're so busy with your students and with um preparing lectures and so forth it's hard to keep up with keeping one's website up to date. But if you go to cosmosandpsyche.com, there's good essays that I've written there, some interviews. You can also simply Google Richard tarnus and there's there's quite a few of my lectures that are are just around right now or, or, or interviews, podcasts, et cetera. You mentioned the one with Chris Brennan that uh, I did uh, a few weeks ago that and that was focused particularly on Pluto. That it went to uh, many topics in the course of the the long period we, he interviewed me, and then so yeah, you could look there. For those of you who are are readers, um, Cosmos and Psyche is worth reading. Um, the book itself, Passion of the Western Mind, is is a work that my earlier work, which is not astrological uh, explicitly, although astrology plays a role in the history of. The Western world view that I'm tracing, but it in some ways prepares us for understanding astrology because I, and and the role of astrology today because I'm tracking how our understanding of the universe evolved over the last 2,500 years and how our understanding of uh, of archetypes, for example, which is a term from Plato, uh, the Platonic tradition, but is also connected to the ancient experience of the gods and goddesses, and to the modern psychological view of archetypes as powerful psychological uh, forces and forms, principles in our, our own uh, soul. So those two books you might find worthwhile as well. Those interested in the work of Stan Groff that I've worked a lot with, that new anthology of essays is called Psyche Unbound. A lot of great essays in there by about twenty different scholars. I mentioned Joseph Campbell's one of them, Fritjof Capra, Francis von. Quite a it's it's a lot of great essays there. And then finally, the film series, which is right now. I mean, actually, I uh, the the people who made the film, uh, the documentary, are right now deciding what's the next way it will be uh, released. It went through this three week period where. People could watch it for free, one a day, and then many people, or you could, and you could buy the whole series. Now that was done by a particular distributor, and that's over right now. And so they're planning out whether they're going to uh, put it on something like Netflix or one of the major places where you can stream such a uh, a documentary or some other way. I imagine word will get around the astrological community when that release plan is disseminated, but. I will do my best to make sure that that's on my website, cosmosandpsyche.com, when we do know what's happening.
0: Amazing. Thank you so very much for this beautiful conversation, for your time, for your knowledge. I, I so deeply appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you very much. I, 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 I'm i uh, grateful for your invitation. And um, yeah, now that I heard you and uh, experienced our our conversation i'm i'm uh, grateful for really appreciating your 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 work in the world now that i have seen it in action
0: and... <laughs> thank you so much